0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. For a few moments... I want you to imagine an eight-year-old girl. And if you're a mother like me, that's pretty easy. I'm one and I can remember what my kid was like at every age, but if you're not a mother, I'm sure you know someone like a neighbor or a niece, or maybe you can remember just being that young yourself. I have a niece about that age. She loves Hello Kitty and Shopkins and she likes to dress like a princess and sing along to songs on the radio. And like most girls her age, she likes to dress in sparkly clothes and she's missing some teeth. She loves to giggle all the time. She's really funny and she's just pure innocence. I remember being that age. I was obsessed with finding fairies after getting Brian Froud's fairies book. It's just not a time in your life that you should feel any kind of fear. You're very trusting in everyone, but sadly in this world, you can't be. When my boy was around four, he decided to hide in the clothing rack in the store. I literally took my eyes away from him for a few seconds and he was gone. Luckily for my sanity, he popped out about a minute later. I was relieved and angry at the same time. And it was at that point that I knew I had to explain stranger danger to him. I didn't want to, because, you know, I didn't want to take away that veil that kids have when they don't know the world can be dangerous. But I knew I had to. So I told him why it upset me, and how there are bad people out there. Bad people who actually want to hurt kids. And some kids get taken away, and they never see their parents again. And this is what I had to tell him. And that's a story I'm going to tell today. It's a story about a little girl who never came back. She never got to finish school, go to prom, get married. A little girl who never got to see her parents again. And this is all because of a monster and one who was never caught. Deborah Lynn Makel was only eight years old when she disappeared. Debbie, as she was known, had blue eyes. and She had a sweet little angelic face that was framed by shoulder-length blonde hair. And she was just your typical third grader. She got good grades in school, and she loved to dance. Her family lived in a place that was called Rice's Landing in Pennsylvania. And it's a very small place. It's so small that it shares a post office with the closest town. The population in 2014 was less than 500 people. That whole town is slightly larger than my graduating high school class. According to citydata.com, there's just one business, a true value hardware store. The nearest big city is Pittsburgh, and that's roughly 34 miles away, or 55 kilometers. So calling it small is an understatement. There's not a lot of diversity, you know, kind of like my hometown, which is probably less than an hour from it. And this website says it's 97% Caucasian. So that gives you an image of what it's like. As of January, the number of registered sex offenders in Rice's Landing were three. That ratio number of residents to the number of sex offenders is 152 to 1. I'm not sure what those numbers were in 1973 when this all took place. But it just wasn't something that was on anyone's radar. I grew up in a very small town. We were about ten minutes from the closest town. And it was safe to play out in the yard or walk through the woods to the pond over the hill. People didn't lock their doors. You knew your neighbors. We had to routinely call ours to let them know their cows had gotten out. So I imagine Rice's Landing to be very similar. People know each other. So there's trust. Debbie lived with her parents, Duane and Charlotte. Dwayne taught at Avella High School, and Charlotte worked at a clothing factory. And since both her parents worked, they had arranged for a local teenage girl to sit with her and her two brothers until they got home from work. And it was only for about 45 minutes after the school bus dropped them off before Charlotte would get home. You know, but lately the babysitter kind of flaked out and was coming less and less. The kids had keys to the house, so that wasn't a big deal. Debbie's brothers, David and Vaughn, were older, 11 and 9 respectively. And they were at that age where it's alright for them to watch over their sister and care for themselves until their mom got home. And seriously, how much safer could this scenario get? It's a rural place, where everyone knows each other. The kids ride the bus home and their parents are there with them in under an hour. That day, Friday, October 5th, 1973, was a normal one. Debbie and her brothers went to school. Debbie attended Dry Tavern Elementary. That day she wore a green dress and she carried with her a pink purse. Normally she rode the bus home on Ferncliff Road, which was about halfway between the towns of Dry Tavern and Jefferson. And her brothers rode with her. But on this day they had special permission to walk since they were selling magazine subscriptions door to door. And Debbie had to ride alone and it was a fact that didn't sit well with her, according to her busmates. She pouted about not being able to walk with the boys. Around 3.50, she stepped off the bus, and she turned up the tar and gravel dead-end road that led toward her house. Her brothers remember seeing her at the top of the hill, and they waved. A neighbor also saw her walk up the driveway to the split-level house where the family lived. Charlotte Magle arrived home at roughly 4.50 p.m. Outside on the steps were her daughter's schoolbooks. Debbie wasn't inside, but, you know, her mother just assumed she was outside playing. That was a typical day in the life of a kid in the country. You'd play outside as long as the weather was good until it got dark and you were called back inside. It wasn't long before Debbie's dad and brothers also came home. So when dinner time came at 5.30 p.m. and Debbie still wasn't there... Her parents got a little worried, but they decided, you know, maybe she was at a friend's house, so they called around to some homes. One woman recalls getting one of those calls when she was home as a child. The family had the same last name as one of Debbie friends, and this girl remembers her mother got the, off the phone, and she remarked, that girl should be home at this time of night. When no one said they had seen her, the family drove around looking for her. And then panic set in, because this was highly unusual. The family then made a call to the police. And it was a Friday night, and Friday nights in small towns are all about high school football. That's the big event. The whole town attends the game. And that was the case this night. So an announcement was made over the loudspeaker at the Jefferson Morgan High School game that Debbie was missing, and they needed searchers. Over half the people in the stands got up to help with the search. And this is long before the days of the Amber Alert. Missing alerts were just word of mouth. The search party was around 180 people, and that consisted of volunteer firefighters, police area residents, and even the Boy Scouts. In small towns like Grace's Landing, you don't have a regular fire department, so everyone who works is a volunteer. I just want to keep hammering in the fact of how small of a place this is. So this incident had much more impact than a child going missing in a bigger place. It's not an anonymous face. It was someone they knew or heard of. Bloodhounds were brought in from the Moundsville State Penitentiary, which is my hometown. And at that time, the penitentiary was fully functional. Bloodhounds were very necessary for the many prisoner escapes. And this search went on the whole weekend. Although it's a small place, it's very wooded and hilly, making a search much more difficult. You have to remember that it was October, and this is the eastern part of the United States. So leaves were covering the ground, creating the perfect camouflage. By this time, around 700 people were involved in the search of a 3.2 mile radius. This is well above the population of the town itself. Some areas were searched multiple times by various groups. They'd set up roadblocks on the tiny winding roads well into the night, and a command post had been set up at the Rice's Landing fire hall. Food had been provided by the ladies' auxiliary and many of the mothers in the town, and it quickly became the largest search in the town's history. At 11.30 a.m., Sunday morning, Two of Debbie's cousins, John and Thomas Anderson, were involved in the search. They just joined in the search that morning, and they walked about 10 minutes from the family home. They were in the area of a ruins of a former distillery, and the Anderson boys had only been searching the area for about 15 minutes when they spotted something green poking out of the debris in the wooded area of Pumpkin Run. That area was on the other side of a meadow that was across a stream that was behind the Maeckel home. And to their horror, they found that this was the body of Debbie Makel. The green was the dress that she'd been wearing that day. Her body was discovered in a shallow grave. And everyone on the scene was baffled since volunteers had already combed that area. So how in the world did they miss seeing her? Knowing how thoroughly they had searched, many suspected the body had been placed there afterwards. The 8-year-old had been raped. Death had occurred from strangulation by a piece of twine wrapped around her neck, which caused her larynx to break. Frank Bem was the county coroner at the time. He held that position for 36 years. He said the bruises on her neck indicated that she'd been killed before she was sexually assaulted. He theorized that the killer dragged the body to the distillery grounds after it had been searched, which makes sense. From there, the killer piled logs and twigs over the body, but not so much that it wouldn't be found. In fact, it was so shoddily hidden, it was like the killer wanted it to be found. Bem said he concluded by the rope burns on her tiny neck that she'd been strangled. She would have been less than 50 pounds, so that wouldn't have been difficult. Her feet were shoeless. Nowhere to be found were the black shoes she'd been wearing. And also missing was her pink purse and her blue underwear. According to most accounts that I read, her coat had been found on the front doorstep with her books by her mom. And to me, that's not unusual. Seriously, trying to keep a coat on a kid is nearly impossible. When they come out of school, they're either not wearing one or they're wearing it very loosely. And also to keep in mind, October in Pennsylvania can get quite warm. It usually doesn't get chilly here until late October and sometimes until even November. So I don't think anyone there expected to find a body. Many just thought she'd simply wandered off, maybe losing her way in a wooded area no one thought that they would find a little girl raped and murdered. That was just an unthinkable response. Next began the task of trying to find this killer. Over 1,000 interviews were conducted, and hundreds of polygraphs were given. The police were bombarded with tips, but nothing panned out. Even though there were a handful of suspects, there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges against one person. State Trooper Joseph Albani was quoted in the paper saying, Right now I have a case file about as thick as the Pittsburgh phone book. And you have to keep in mind that this was the early 70s, so there wasn't a computerized system that they could reference. This was all footwork. And DNA wasn't something that could be analyzed. Even in big cities, the p- police weren't equipped to solve murders as quickly as today. In a place like Rice's Landing, this investigation took time but for the Makel family, that was excruciating. Charlotte said, for the first weeks, first month, first years, we were very concerned about our safety and why this happened. We had no answers to anything. Who, what, why? We would have sold our souls at the time for answers. The case, case quickly went cold. And despite all efforts of the investigators, A year after the murder, a psychic came forward claiming to know the how, the where, and the who. But whatever he told police provided no help, and the case didn't progress at all for years. Eventually, the cold case was turned over to Trooper John F. Marshall, who works on cold cases for the state police.
2: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns.
1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
0: in Uniontown, PA. He tells of how many people came forward claiming to have killed the 8-year-old girl. He said they were ruled out either as braggarts or suffering from a hero complex. Marshall said many will confess by wanting to provide closure to the family via the hero complex. Since the crime occurred in the early 70s, DNA wasn't a tool that could have been used. But Marshall's team has since submitted what they had to the FBI's CODIS system. The CODIS links the federal, state, and local crime labs to compare DNA profiles. A DNA profile of, quote, someone was found on the evidence that was sent in to CODIS. But it didn't match anyone specific in the database. But that doesn't deter trooper Marshall, He declared that there are still three possible suspects still living, and he plans to re-interview them and ask for DNA swabs. He said, I'm going to ask for cooperation, and if 99 out of 100 people say sure, then things are going to get interesting. In particular, one suspect is a convicted killer jailed for two other homicides this man contacted state authorities and said he had info about the murder of Debbie Makell. The man has ties to the area. He also cannot be provided with a reduced sentence to his other crimes by confessing to this one. But the confessions are something police regularly see with these cases, so their skepticism is pretty high. In years since, the case has grown very cold and many armchair sleuths have looked into it via the internet. I went on many forums to see what others were saying. Quite a few think the police know who did this, but do not have enough evidence to make an arrest. Some even went so far as to say they think there's a cover-up, insinuating that this person has ties to someone with some influence. Being a small town, I don't doubt that part about the police having a good suspect, but little evidence. I think what people don't realize is that if someone is charged and they're in the tried and that evidence is flimsy, that person will just walk free. So this evidence has to be substantial for them to make a move. I doubt there's any kind of cover up by police. It seems like this entire community has been wrecked over Debbie's death. With the case switching hands and the passing of time, that theory just doesn't hold any credence. There were some odd details that were noticed by people on the web forms. So first, there's the bowl of plums. When you read old newspaper accounts, I noticed it too. The great thing about this day and age is being look over old newspaper stories. You're getting an actual account of what occurred at that time, and it always provides some interesting details, like the plums. In some accounts, there's a bowl of plums left on a mickle's doorstep. And other accounts, that bowl was on the table. But in every account, it's been moved. And it can't really be pinned down to who left them. Sometimes I've read it was a neighbor, and other times I've read it was a grandfather. But I'll agree that, yes, the plums were moved. And many think it wasn't Debbie who moved them. So the theory is, was the killer in the house? Another detail that stood out was apparently the basement door that was always locked was found wide open. Debbie could have unlocked it and went into the backyard to play. But I find that a little implausible. Most kids are afraid of the basement. I think if she went outside, she would have went out a back door. So why was this door open? And it really leads you to think that maybe the killer was in the house and took her out the basement door. I think the person knew this family's routine. Maybe they had been stalking and watching for a long time. The boys normally rode home on the bus with their sister. So how did this person know she would be alone that day? In my opinion, this killer had to be someone that lived in the area. I mean, think about it. This is a dead end street. So that rules out someone just driving through the area. Some on the internet point to high traffic on the main thoroughfare by this town. But it wouldn't play into this remote road. I mean, have you ever driven down a dead end street in a neighborhood? People notice you. If someone's in their yard as you drive by, they stop and look at you. And this is the case everywhere. The only thing that could bring an unnoticed person around could be either a salesman or a hunter. And at that time, door-to-door salesmen were still a thing. I mean, look at what her brothers were doing. I remember my grandmother turning quite a few away when I was in Pennsylvania. Hunting season is big in these kind of rural areas. When I looked up when the season starts, some do start in October. Now granted, you can't hunt within a certain proximity to homes, but it's one way to sit for hours and not be noticed. And there's always the chance that this was a very random crime, but I really think it's the opposite. One other last odd detail I'll mention is the dongs that the Makles had. The Makles raised coon dogs and bird dogs. A coon dog or a coon hound is a type of scent hound used in hunting, specifically for raccoon hunting. They're used to chase after prey, and they bark really loud. From all accounts I've read, no one heard the dogs bark at anything that day. There's an article in a 1974 Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that mentions a witness who stopped by the house early in the afternoon because they were inquiring about buying one of the dogs. The witness said they saw the curtain move, but no one ever came to the front door. It's another odd detail which really makes you think that whoever abducted Debbie might have been inside the house. The Mickle family still live in that same house. Instead of remembering the grief, they try to keep her memory alive. Her school portrait hangs on the wall. Her mother, Charlotte, went back to school and became a nurse, and her father, were retired. The couple had two more sons after the disappearance. Her mother said, When we had her, I think we did a really good job with her. We were proud of her. But you go to graduations and weddings and family things. And you wonder, where would life be if it had been different? You never get past it. And you need to know what happened. Somebody out there has an answer, a clue that could help. I want them prosecuted. I want to know. It's really heartbreaking to think of this family trying to go on. The papers mention how they became guarded and lost their sense of trust. And you know, you would. This was a close-knit community. It's a case that I think can be solved, and when you read about her, you just get this desperate sense of wanting to find some answers. You just scream in your head that someone has to know something. I went around digging into different registered sex offender lists for Rice's Landing and their surrounding areas. I found one guy that stood out. His date of birth was 1949, which would have made him around 24. On a complaint Who was less than 13. His last residence was Rice's Landing. But this is all conjecture, and that's a rabbit hole you can easily fall down. It's disturbing to me how many sex offenders are in one where my son and I live. And for me as a parent, it was just a necessary evil. For me, I had to know where the danger lies. I found out that a regular customer who comes into the retail store where I work is a sex offender. So, it's pretty shocking, too, how many people to find out are on this list. It's incredibly disturbing. It's sad that kids can't just go out and play and walk down the street. And it's sad they can't be kids without someone preying on them. In 2002, Alice Sebold published her book, The Lovely Bones. Many people say it's loosely based on the case of Deborah Makel. This story takes place in December 1973 in Norristown, PA. The main character, Susie Salmon, takes a shortcut through a cornfield behind her house. Her neighbor, George Harvey, persuades her to look at his underground den that he dug into his field. There he rapes and murders her. He dismembers her body, and he puts the pieces into a sinkhole. And from heaven, Susie sees everything her family endures after her disappearance. Later, the book was adapted into a film by Peter Jackson in 2009, I've seen both the movie and read the book, and they're both really well done. So I hope in the future some break is made in this case. When the new year started, I said my resolution was going to be to cover some old cold cases near where I live, in my home state of West Virginia. And so many of these cold cases, details can emerge years later for various reasons. You know, sometimes people are just afraid at the time to say what And others don't realize they may hold a detail that's important. And whatever the reason, covering a cold case might bring about something. Or it might not. I know I have a smaller audience, but it might help in some way. And there's always hope. So if you think you might have any relevant information, please call the police. I have two numbers, which I hope are still the right ones. So it's 724 439 7111 or 724-627-6151 that's for I think the local and state police in that area or you can call 1-888-404-TIPS that's one 888 tips like I said I don't know if any help can be provided but it can't hurt to put this out there There's also a number that can be called 24 hours a day. If you have information about a missing child or you suspect a child is being abused, report it to 1-800-THE-LOST or 1-800-843-5678. That's the National Center for the Missing and Exploited Children. According to them, over 800,000 children are reported missing each year in the United States. That equates to roughly 2,000 each day. Out of those, 115 are stranger abduction, meaning they're taken by someone unknown. And in 80% of abductions by strangers, the first contact between the child and abductor occurs within a quarter of a mile of the kid's home. Those are chilling statistics, but it makes you aware, and especially if you're a parent, so please be aware. If you see something odd, just report it. If you see something you think is off or someone is acting odd near a child, just notify someone. Even if you do every single thing right, like the Makles did, something can still happen. There's lots of deranged and sick people out there. All we can do is work together to prevent this from happening. That was the story of Debbie Makel. I really hope her family can get some answers in the future. This was such a hard case to cover. I mean, I just kept looking at her picture. She was just such a cute little girl and it's so hard to think of what happened to her. She was only eight when someone ripped away her future and that's really awful. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I really want to recommend a couple of new shows that I've been listening to recently. The first one is new, and it's a show called Murderish. It's a true crime podcast hosted by Jamie Craig Rice, and she has such a pleasant voice, and her narration is excellent. The most recent one I listened to, she discusses a very creepy encounter she had, and this had me on the edge of my seat. I'm so glad she's safe. Anyway, check out the podcast once again, it's called Murderish. It'll be one of your new favorites. The other one I binged hard, and it's called the WVU Co-Ed Murders. I kept hearing about it, but I never checked it out. I don't know why. Then I forgot what it was called. Finally, I listened to it, and it's one of the best out there. It explores the case of two young women who were murdered in West Virginia on the campus. They were hitchhiking, and then they were later found decapitated. So the project is produced by Kendall Perkinson who narrates. He's joined by author Jeffrey Cameron Fuller and digital researcher Sarah Gibbons, and it's really well done. It's a perfect blend of interviews, the narration, and firsthand accounts, and it's quickly risen to one of my all-time favorites. I'm sure it has something to do with knowing the area where it occurred and hearing the accents of the people involved to some extent, but it's a total binge-worthy podcast. Go check this out. You won't be disappointed. Don't forget to check out Red Run Blonde on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I just started a Red Run Blonde group on Facebook, so please join it. I do love hearing from everyone, and I thank everyone who posts, and I want to thank all the true crime podcasters out there. You're all so supportive. It's a really great bunch of people. So that was this week's episode. Catch you all next week, and stay safe.